Well, welcome everybody. Thank you for turning up and, and making your way into the building after a slight scare there. Uh, but luckily the police have got everything under control. This is a public lecture hosted by the Grantham Research Institute. And my name is Robert Faulkner. I'm an associate of the Institute and also senior lecturer in international relations. And it's a great honor and pleasure indeed to introduce today's speaker today, Senator Lindsey Graham. I'm sure many of you in the audience will be familiar with Senator Graham's distinguished career in American politics, but I'll just give you, nevertheless, a, a brief uh, uh, overview of the key factors here. He is, of course, a member of the Republican Party and has represented South Carolina in the U.S. Senate since 2002. Before that, he was a member of the House of Representatives from 1994 onwards. He has a long career, distinguished career of service in the US Air Force, including, I note, in the 1980s in my home country, Germany, for five years. And he currently serves on no less than five Senate committees, including the very powerful Appropriations Committee, the Armed Services Committee, the Budget Committee, the Judiciary Committee, and, I note, the Senate Aging Committee. Um, now, I understand the average age in the Senate is 61. Uh, so one would expect the Senate to have a committee on aging. Uh, but um, I'm not quite sure what they look into, but I'm sure you are the youngest member of that committee, of course. <laughs> I should also remind the audience that in the run-up to Copenhagen 2009, Senator Graham supported a domestic climate bill, which, as we all know, didn't happen in the end, very regrettably so. Uh, but this is not the topic of the lecture today. The focus is primarily on US energy policy and international security. And with the background of the news that we have seen in the last few weeks, the war in Libya, the nuclear crisis in Japan, I think we couldn't have hoped for a more topical uh, lecture than this. Um, we've agreed that Senator Graham will speak for about half an hour, half the time allotted. We have to finish by 7.30, but he's kindly agreed to take questions, and I'm sure you will all want to come in on that. So without much further ado, um, let me ask you all to join me in welcoming Senator Graham to the LC. Thank you. You're from Germany? <laughs> great, great accent there. Uh, thank you for coming. This, is this free? I feel better already because I'd hate for you to have to pay to hear me. I, just arrived today from, uh, you know, it's been a long day, but it's been a good day. And what I thought I'd do is just be as honest with you as I know how to be about energy policy as it exists in America, where I think my country's going to go, sort of the, my two cents worth about where the world's at, and just take it, this is just me talking. I'm one of a hundred. The, the senator I replaced was Senator Strom Thurmond. Anyone ever heard of him? Ah, I tell you, tough act to follow. The guy lived to be a hundred, and uh, he was elected in 1954. I was born in 55, so <laughs> this job doesn't come open a lot. Uh, he was in World War II. He landed at D-Day in a glider, the second wave in. He was a sitting judge and had to get a waiver to go into World War II, enter World War II, <clears throat> because he was too old. So he served all the way up to I replaced him in 2002. <clears throat> but in 1994, you had the 50th anniversary of the D-Day landing. Uh, so in 1994, they're getting up a group of people from the Congress to go to Normandy to represent our country at the D-Day landing. So they asked Senator Thurmond, because he is the oldest anything. And uh, he wrote, glad you asked, can't go, got a kid graduating high school. 
tough act to follow. Uh, not many guys had that problem 50 years later. But I've really enjoyed the job. It's been a lot of fun. Uh, I've been in politics uh, now since 1995. And a, a few years ago with Senator Kerry and Lieberman, we tried to come up with an um, energy policy that, that focused on energy independence, job creation, and cleaner air. Uh, I'm here to tell you, and take it for what it's worth, climate change as a cap-and-trade bill uh, based on climate change has no chance of passing the House or Senate in America. That's just a reality. Uh, we've had a couple of chances to get cap-and-trade bills through. The Republican Party is all saying in unison here that cap-and-trade legislation that put burden on energy production and energy cost uh, based on climate change is a non-starter. No one in my party seeking the the, uh, the presidency in 2012 will embrace climate change and cap and trade. And I'll just be honest with you, the Obama administration is not going to uh, uh, embrace it either. There's not going to be a bill coming out of the White House to the Congress that says pass cap and trade legislation because we're worried about the polar bear. That's just not going to happen. How many of you believe that climate change is real, man-made emissions are causing the planet to heat up? I got some people you need to meet. Uh, they don't believe that, but at the end of the day, here's what I believe. I just can't imagine all the carbon and other gases coming out of cars and trucks all over the world is particularly good for you. And I think acid rain is real. I don't get any debate about that. What goes up in the air can come back down and destroy forest. That just happened. It's harder to get people to envision that man and man alone is accounting for what is clearly a, a planet changing. But I think there's a lot of good science, but that science has been under attack. And one thing I can tell you about the debate back, in, back at home, uh, what used to be a solid belief by most major political leaders that climate change was real and caused by man-made CO2 emissions is very much at, at risk and at doubt now. Just the last couple of years has been very, very tough on the science. Now here's the way I think you can go forward. There won't be a cap-and-trade bill. There won't be a climate change-based energy policy in America in the next two years or anytime soon. What you've got here in, in Great Britain is a consensus by both parties and business. That's what we don't have at home. But here's what we do have at home, a consensus that I hope you'll find somewhat encouraging. Anybody here from America? Wow. Anybody here from South Carolina? Are you registered to vote? Okay. My whole speech is directed toward you. All of you are welcome to come and visit, but uh, uh, here's where I think America's going to come together soon. Gas is $8.09 a gallon even though you don't use gallons in, in this country. It's about $3 and a half in South Carolina. When it is $4, you know what happens at home. People go crazy. $4 a gallon gas is going to get the Congress motivated. And we're all going to come up with our own energy plan. And when it goes back to $2 and a half a gallon, we're going to talk about something else. So that you got this yo-yo going on at home. But I do believe that gas prices are going to spike somewhere around $4 a gallon sooner rather than later. And if the world keeps getting any crazier, it's going to be sooner. 
And that moment is going to allow us as a political body and the, the American people as a whole to rethink where we're going and how we're going to get there. There's nothing like a crisis, as Ron Emanuel said, to create opportunity. Well, at $4 a gallon gas, you're going to have the Republican Party push domestic exploration for oil and gas. Drilling in Alaska, drilling off the coast of South Carolina, drilling in the eastern Gulf. And you're going to have some Democrats jumping on board because they'll be afraid not to. Even though we had a major catastrophe in the Gulf about a year and a half ago, when it hits $4 a gallon, that will be in your rearview mirror politically. So when that day comes, I think you have an opportunity to not only look at solving uh, the gas price problem, but come up with a more rational energy policy. I can stick anybody to the roof in South Carolina by saying, it is my goal to stop buying so much oil from the Mideast from people who hate our guts. I'm tired of borrowing 400, uh, borrowing uh, 41 cents on a dollar to run America. The most money we borrow comes from the communist Chinese, and the biggest expense we have is to buy oil from the Mideast people who hate us. And everybody nods. So it's more complicated than that. But from a soundbite perspective, America is ready to break her dependency on Mideast oil. And there'll be two camps. One camp will, be say, will say, we have all the fossil fuels we need, let's just go find it. There'll be another camp that says, no, wait a minute, it's not that simple. Let's try to expand domestic exploration. Let's see if we can get off of this stuff. And the jobs to be created in the 21st century for you and my constituents that will not be exported to China or India are going to come in the alternative energy area. So what I'm going to try to do is create a construct that goes like this. My energy plan will get us to energy independence because it will allow more domestic exploration for oil and gas, but it also will allow us to start investing in alternative technology that will allow us to use less fossil fuels and, quite frankly, be in the race with the Chinese to create the jobs of the 21st century. And oh, by the way, it will clean up the air. As a Republican, I do believe that cleaning up the air is a noble pursuit, but it has to be done in a business-friendly manner. Cap-and-trade at home is tainted as a way to clean up the air. The reason for cap-and-trade climate change is not going to sell to the Congress. But there is a formula to be pursued in America that will allow my nation to become more energy independent and create jobs and wind up cleaning up the air that, if followed by other nations, will get us to where we want to go. What will not happen? I don't see a treaty being signed or passed that comes through the U.S. Senate where the United States signs up to an international admission control system. The billion dollars plus that we have pledged to climate change ad adaptation to poorer countries won't be funded. So from an international perspective, I do not see the Obama administration taking the lead. So all the people are out there waiting for America to lead on this. America is going to look internally. And here's where we can form an alliance. If we could marry up with the, you know, our, our friends in Great Britain and throughout the world to develop low-carbon technologies, that does sell. Nuclear power is under siege because of Japan. How many people would like to see coal-fired plants replaced in your lifetime? 
what are you going to replace them with? Wind and solar in America's 15 to 20 percent of the grid. I do believe that nuclear power is part of the solution when it comes to cleaning up the air and creating jobs. Energy independence is achieved through the transportation sector. If you want to break your dependence on foreign oil, you have to look at basically the transportation side of the house. You can lower emissions and lower your dependency on foreign oil and fossil fuels in general without a cap. The economic incentives to develop vehicles that will run on something other than traditional gasoline is going to be there when gas gets to 4 or $5 a gallon. Electrification of vehicles is possible and it will create jobs that will never be created from the oil and gas industry. Finding domestic oil and gas supplies helps you break your Mideast oil dependency, but it does not get you to where you eventually want to go. And that's an economy that is not so reliant on fossil fuels. One day in my lifetime, I'd love to go to the Mideast and say, we'd like to help you with your problems, but we don't need your oil. That has to happen. This world is in, a world is in a mess right now, and every time America or Great Britain or any of us get involved in the Mideast, the first accusation people make against us is we're there for the oil. Well, I can promise you we didn't go to Iraq for the oil. That's the dumbest way in the world to get oil. It cost you 4,000 lives and a trillion dollars. At the end of the day, your generation, the young people here, are inheriting a world that's very dangerous very complicated and full of hope. What I see in the Mideast gives me more hope than it does worry. The fact that young men and women would take to the streets and demand their freedom in a fashion I could not have envisioned three months ago makes me believe that something is going on that is really good. And the reason I'm proud of your prime minister and the fr I never thought I'd live long enough to say as an American, be as bold as the French. But the French, the French have really gone out there. Your prime minister took a tremendous risk and your parliament had an overwhelming vote to support a military engagement at a time when most British citizens and American citizens are war weary. So I just do believe it's the right thing to do to help the Libyan people. I don't know how it's going to end. Who replaces Gaddafi? It will be a mess at best. It will be uncertain. But if he survives, it will be a disaster. I don't know what's going to happen in Egypt. But I know we got a chance in Egypt, the center of the Arab world, to do something that has never existed in my lifetime. And that is to create a governing system that's not corrupt to the core, where a few get everything, and a young woman can knock it out of the park. Now, a lot of people your age in my country and in this country have already been to Iraq or Afghanistan multiple times. Whether you agree with these operations or not, I would just tell you, from my point of view, the young people that are inhabiting the planet today are some of the best we've ever produced. Because these young men and women who are going to Afghanistan and Iraq multiple times inspire me to be the best senator I can be. So when I get yelled at for working with Democrats about energy policy, I've got to remember that these young men and women go
to Iraq and Afghanistan to get shot at? And wouldn't it be nice to give them an energy policy that would make their country safer and the world a better place for all of us to live? The consensus around climate change does not exist in America as it does here. The idea of a cap-and-trade system being imposed by Republicans and Democrats on the American economy is not going to happen. That does not mean, ladies and gentlemen, that we can't move forward as a nation in America to adapt technologies that do produce cleaner air and make the planet that we all live in a better place. It doesn't mean we can't move forward to create jobs for a generation of young Americans who are going to have to compete with the world for jobs. So I don't know how this energy policy debate ends. I don't know how Libya ends. I don't know how Iraq and Afghanistan ends. But I know what's the right thing to do. The right thing is to pursue rational policies and be bold and be decisive. The right thing for my country to do is break her dependency on foreign oil. The right thing for my country to do is lead the world in clean technology before it's too late. The right thing for my country to do is to stand up for the values that made her unique and special. That's the right thing for you as an individual to do. Thank you for having me. I'll take any questions you have. Yes, sir. Uh, thank you. Sir. Sorry. I, th I think I have to take Chair's prerogative here. We'll bundle a few questions. Yeah. Would you like to stand at the lectern? Or, or oh, so that'd be good. Come. Why don't you come over here, indeed? Can you see me? Indeed. And I think the microphone is the mi Can you right. hear me through the right. microphone? Yeah. Okay. What I would like to do now is take a couple of questions in groups so that uh, we can get in as many as possible. Could you please say who you are and what your affiliation is? And, and could you please ask questions rather than make statements and keep them brief so that many people can say something. Okay, gentlemen. Hi, my name is Stanley Grossman. Among other things, I'm a member of Democrats Abroad. Uh, still a fan of your, uh, one of the few Republican senators who are actually talking keep to Democrats. that to yourself, okay? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Very anyway, um, one of the things, one of the realities in the world is that there's a, the biggest, the cheapest source of energy anywhere is coal, yeah. and coal is a mess. And the Chinese government has been uh, doing all sorts of experiments, uh, building new plants for sequestration and other means of burning clean coal and actually making the byproducts uh, a source of energy rather than just a pollution of the air. Uh, the United States government has not done very much um, in terms of uh, funding for these very Obviously exciting projects. Yeah. The question is, can that be changed? What are they going to do? Because and, and coal, without coal, you'll never have cheap energy. Yeah, you know, the guys, what's your name again? Okay, well, you're dead right. Uh, can you hear me? Is this thing working? Transportation, you can lower emissions without a cap, right? You can have mileage standards. You can develop new cars that run more efficiently. You can have uh, hybrid vehicles that run on batteries and gasoline. You can have biofuel vehicles. You can do a lot of things on the transportation side to, brace it, to break your dependence on foreign oil and to lower your emissions. The generation side, it's hard for a company who's a utility company to retire a coal-fired plant if the law would allow you to continue to burn coal.
because you've got shareholders you have to deal with. The Chinese are doing two things. They're building a coal-fired plant on Monday, and on Tuesday they're developing alternative technologies to coal and trying to find a way to make coal cleaner. What are the, what's missing? You have a carbon price here in Britain. You have a floor. So that allows a company that wants to build a nuclear power plant a, an incentive to build a nuclear power plant. If you can burn all the coal you would like, why would you build a nuclear power plant from a shareholder point of view? Natural gas is, is screwed everything up. I'm glad we've got a lot of it. But in America, if you're going to move away from coal, you have to have a reason to move away. We have the EPA hanging over the, the, the country's heads when it comes to regulating carbon. There will be a bipartisan effort to stop the EPA from having the authority to regulate carbon. It will probably pass at least for a couple of years. So how can you create power without coal. Carbon sequestration and other technologies to make burning coal better for the environment. We are investing in somewhat in America, but the Chinese are about to dominate this market. So what I envision happening is that coal-fired plants will only be retired in the United States when you can get the coal companies at the table. And here's what we need to tell our coal companies. There will be a place for you in the energy of mix but it's got to be cleaner. And the only way we're going to get there is the economics of making it cleaner begin to make sense. So you do it through carrots or sticks. So I think a clean energy standard, not a cap and trade standard on the production side, regionally applied, where you require a certain percentage of the energy utilities portfolio to be clean, gives you an incentive to shut that coal-fired plant and replace it. So what would clean energy be in the world I'm trying to construct? It would be clean coal. And that goes back, how do you make coal cleaner? The day that there's a reward for making coal cleaner to produce energy that's with less carbon content is the day it will happen. And I think a clean energy standard is probably the only thing left in the country, my country, that would uh, allow these changes to happen. So in South Carolina, 50% of our power comes from nuclear power. The other 50% comes from coal. You pick a clean energy number that, that the region, the southeast, has to get to in the next 20 years. If you're not able to count toward that number nuclear power, we can't make it. Now, in the northwest, you have a lot of hydropower. So what I envision is that you ask the perfect question is to try, try to create investments now in technologies that would have a place for coal, but the coal would be cleaner, and that you would have a clean energy standard that would make it a better investment for utility to build a nuclear power plant, because 30 years from now the standards get tighter. And it makes these alternative technologies more deployable. If the standard is not tough enough, you'll never deploy the clean alternative technologies. If it's too tough and it doesn't include the right mix, you're never going to get it through the Senate. So the formula here is to create a clean energy standard, regionally applied, that would incentivize technologies to move away from dirty coal to clean coal to gas to nuclear to something else, wind and solar included, and that way, over the next 20 or 30 years, on the generation side, we could have a very low carbon economy 
without ever having to embrace the debate about climate change or cap-and-trade. That would have cleaned up our air. It would have created jobs we don't have today. Uh, and quite frankly, ladies and gentlemen, that's the only pathway forward I see. Great. Thank you. I'm going to take groups of two or three questions now. Um, let's, let's go over the, the two questions in the front, and then I'll go back. Senator, do you think there's been an international... Sorry, could you please say yes, who sorry, you are? Keith Raffin. Um, Senator, do you think there's been an international overreaction to what's happened in Japan at the Fukushima plant? And why I'm saying that is what uh, one of our leading scientists here, former government advisor, has actually said, that the reactors uh, did switch off uh, post the earthquake. What was the problem was basically the height of the, the tsunami, which was, a, as he said, and I quote him, a once in a 5,000 year a chance. Obviously, the plant right. is very old, right. but do you think that internationally, as I say, we're overreacting? Well, I'll, I'll just take well, yeah, two more absolutely. questions. Yes, please. You've got to remember, I'm in the Senate. I can't do over two at a time. So, <laughs> uh, Nuclear power uh, requires... Sorry, could you please say who you are and your affiliation? Uh, Matthew Partridge, Dr. Matthew Partridge, freelance journalist. Um, uh, nuclear power re re requires government subsidies, at least initially. Alternative energy requires government subsidies, at least initially. Um, how does this square with uh, re Republican demands for drastic spending cuts? Okay. Not, not well. Uh, <laughs> Let's take these two, shall we? Okay, let, uh, two very good questions. I don't know the answer to where, where we've overreacted or not until I see what our country does and, and what other countries may do, what your country may do. I know in Germany there's been a reaction uh, that I think, quite frankly, is an overreaction, but it's not my job to make policy for the German government. I mean, at the end of the day, what happened in Japan with the tsunami and the earthquake is just devastating. But you throw the nuclear problem into the mix and you just got, it's just a, a terrible situation. I live within five miles of a, a reactor, um, a nuclear reactor that's been in, in operation for 40 years. Here's what I know we can't afford to do. If you're really serious about trying to go to a low carbon generation economy, there is no other way that I can envision in the next 30 or 40 years without a nuclear component. And what happened in Japan was probably the most of the damage came from the tsunami, the backup system. Some of this man, may have been man-made, but a nuclear renaissance in America was just about ready to balloon. And we have subsidies in the Obama budget of $36 billion, not subsidies, but loan guarantees. And you asked a very good question. I want to say something good about President Obama here. He has been very forward-leaning on nuclear power. His budget has $36 billion of loan guarantees. Why do you need a loan guarantee? Now, it's, a, it's not really a money coming out of the Treasury, but after 30 years of not building a nuclear power plant, who the hell wants to be the first guy to put all their money in it? I mean, if you're on Wall Street or any other investment place, would you back up a utility who's deciding to build a nuclear power plant? The answer is not many people in the private sector have been attracted to building nuclear power plants. So these loan guarantees says if you invest your money, the government will stand behind it. So that to me is not a direct subsidy. But we do have 50 cents a gallon subsidy for corn-based ethanol. That is billions of dollars of an expenditure that I think will be cut out of the budget. So from a pure point of view, there will be carrots on the table in the Republican budget. 
but the subsidies we have for energy, where it's electrification of cars or ethanol, wind, there's over $30 billion of subsidies promised to the wind uh, industry in the next 10 to 15 years. They're going to be trimmed. But here's the problem. It goes back to what he said. How in the world can you move away from fossil fuels to alternative energy mix without some transition period? So I do believe there will be a place in the Republican world for some government involvement in developing these new technologies, but not $30 billion worth. I do believe the United States will go forward with their, the reactors that we're planning to build. There's three that are on the drawing board now. One's in South Carolina, one's in Georgia. The South Carolina company who's trying to build this reactor has put 40% of their market cap into the reactor. If we let this fail, if we let the South Carolina and Georgia project fail, if we impose a moratorium that's going to drive up cost and these two projects fail, that will doom the nuclear renaissance in America for decades. So in the next 18 months, my country is going to have to make some really hard decisions about the future of nuclear power. And I do hope we choose wisely because in spite of what happened in Japan, I believe that nuclear power has a place in America's energy mix, that it is safe, reliable, if constructed right, and let's learn from Japan. But the, lo the, the logical lesson is let's learn how to deal with catastrophic events no one envisioned not to get out of the nuclear power business. Okay, there were questions in the center. Could you please... Yep, in the, in the center there. Sorry. Thank you. Hi, Senator. My name is Jessica Vassell. I'm studying abroad for the semester at London Met. I was wondering, um, where do you will the business sector expand for these alternative fuels, such as wind and solar? Do you see that being a public or a private sector endeavor? And how exactly you picture it running? And also, I was wondering if you had any uh, spots open for DC interns this fall. <laughs> well, I tell you what, on the DC intern side, we'll, we'll try to help you, yeah. That's one. We've had South Carolina politics. We've now got the, the job market. Yes, yeah, right. I have to steer this back That's to academic matters. That means that she, uh, okay. she's um, smart. And the gentleman here in the blue jacket in the center. Hi, uh, Brian Saker. Um, if I understand correctly, the, the idea of energy independence is that the US will produce enough energy to satisfy its domestic needs. So notionally they would not be affected if, if uh, the Middle East, for instance, stopped uh, exporting oil for whatever reason. But I mean, if one imagines what will happen in that scenario, presumably somebody is going to be losing a lot of their imports, but in particular, I guess, Europe and the Far East, which means that the oil price will be skyrocketing in those areas. And unless the U.S. cut off exports, which I believe, oil exports, which I believe would be violating WTO rules, obviously that oil is going to be exported until the price is equalized between you know, the U.S. and elsewhere. So it isn't really going to insulate the U.S. from uh, increased prices and shortages of oil. I'm just wondering if you see things differently. Well, it's a very... It's a, it's a long school of economics. Yeah, you, yeah, you yeah. yeah. Uh, I'm going to answer her question. You can... <laughs> you can uh, let's start with the second question. Yeah, oil is a world commodity. It's not unique to the United States, so it has a world price. From a politician's point of view, and promise you won't tell anybody. From a politician's point of view, uh, 
domestic exploration opportunities are going to become the center of the political debate when gas gets to $4 a gallon. And most Americans are just going to feel better knowing that you can access oil and gas in your own country. Forget about the economics that you just described, which are very true. It's a security issue. I don't mind buying oil from Canada, from the oil sands. Have anyone heard of the oil sands? Okay. I went up there, and the footprint to extract from the oil sands is very small, and it has a slightly higher carbon content than Mideastern sweet crude. But when I go back home and talk about being able to generate more domestic supply, I don't mention what you just said, and there's a reality to what you said, because what America is feeling, like a lot of people, is insecurity. It's not so much about the $4 a gallon gas price that I may not be able to change, but just to know that you're charting your own destiny. Isn't that the best feeling in the world, that you've arrived a place in your life where you sort of can chart your own destiny? And this energy independence is more about insecurity than it is a dollar amount. And when we try to break this oil dependency, it is an opening for my country to engage in a clean energy standard and try to have a comprehensive approach. It would sort of go like this. Mr. Democrat, Mrs. Democrat, if you will help me expand domestic ex exploration for oil and gas, I will sit down and work with you to incentivize low carbon uh, uh, products. And I'm willing to do something Republicans generally don't like to do is put some money into the system. I'm willing to have an all-of-the-above approach and have a partnership with the private sector because I don't believe the private sector on its own will get us there. What you've got going here in Great Britain is a partnership between business and the private sector. We will have loan guarantees for the first 10 or 12 reactors. After that, once we can prove to the world you can build a nuclear reactor and America can make money, we're going to phase out. So what I want from you is that if you'll allow me to build nuclear reactors at a reasonable pace, and if you'll allow me to domestically explore for oil and gas that we all own to make us more secure, I'm willing to work with you to create a clean energy standard that will allow, over time, coal-fired plants to be replaced with cleaner technology. And that, to me, is the pathway forward. Does that make sense to you? It, it's not leading the world as an international climate change agreement would lead the world, but is investing in technologies that will change the way America uses energy, which I think over time will help lead the world. Now, you can call me about internships. Wind and solar are $30 billion, and here's the problem I have. Who has cleaned, who created the renewable portfolio standard? Are you familiar with the, the energy? If you're familiar with our energy committee's RPS standard, you really are paying a lot of attention to American politics. But the renewable portfolio standard that came out of the energy committee is heavy on wind and solar. Why? Because of the political bias. Now what I'm asking is something new and novel that no one's ever done on our, in America before. Consider clean energy to include fossil fuels, gas, and clean coal. 
I'm of the opinion that the only way you can move from the coal-fired plants of today to something else is to have a clean energy standard that has an all-of-the-above approach, and that is almost heresy to some people in the environmental community, but I'm beginning to find environmentalists who understand the value of nuclear power and are willing to accommodate the fact that gas is cleaner than dirty coal, carbon sequestrated plants are better than plants that don't have carbon sequestration, start the game. Once you start the game, that's when the private sector takes over. But right now, no one's moving in America. There's a couple trillion dollars of private sector investment, maybe not that much, sitting on the sideline, dying to get involved in the game. But nobody in my country is going to play this game if you don't know what the rules are. So right now, is it smart to invest in building a nuclear power plant? You don't know totally the answer until Japan's re been resolved. But I can tell you without loan guarantees, nobody's going to do it. And thank God to President Obama for putting them on the table as a Democrat. Now, I can tell you wind and solar has a place, but $30 billion is way too much to invest in technology that can only do 15 or 20 percent. So that's my view. Let's get this game started. Good. Thank you. There were some questions at the back. Could we please go up there? <coughs> yep. If you start there, that's right. David Harrington, member of the public. I, I admire your optimism. I was just wondering how representative that is of the views in the Senate. Not very. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> now, That's nah, uh, but I, I can take build on that. Take another one. Yeah. Please, please. And hi, my name is Patrick Sheehan. And Senator, I was wondering if the United States have a um, policy in pursuing the energy source outside space, given the United States have it's a lead country in space technology. I mean, not scientifically by the, you know, some program by NASA, but at a more of a policy level in the, in the Parliament, in the Congress or Senate. Uh, so the, the question is, what will our investment in space exploration be? Is that basically the question? Yeah, I'm going to take a shot at that. President Obama canceled the shuttle flights. Now, I'm really disappointed in that, but when you're $14 trillion in debt, and you're going to South Carolina talking to people who've just lost their home, or their home is worth less, less than the mortgage because of that economic meltdown, or you're about to lose your job, and you talk about more shuttle flights, people, it's not top of their list. At the end of the day, investment in technology and science is going to pay great dividends for those countries who choose to do it. If you choose not to do it, then the world's going to pass you by. And I worry very, very much that as we talk in America and argue among ourselves, our Chinese competitors and other parts of this world are going to invest very heavily in the things that this gentleman talked about, and we're going to get left behind. So the interest level about energy policy is pretty low beyond energy independence. There's a great deal of support for the idea of breaking our dependency on foreign oil. But I guarantee you, you will never have a vote on domestic exploration that will pass with 60 votes or signed in law by President Obama that doesn't do more than just expand domestic exploration. So here's why I'm somewhat optimistic. When that day comes for us to all jump on the bandwagon and we're going to break our dependency on foreign oil because our constituencies are paying $5 a gallon gas and they're mad as hell, creates an opportunity. The worry I have is after the cap-and-trade vote in the House and the deterioration of consensus on climate change, that people are going to be very 
reluctant to get involved in low carbon technologies because it's associated with polar bear politics. Now I'm just being dead honest with you. The only way I know to do this is to convince people back home that if you will engage in energy independence activities, which is more than finding oil and gas in America, it will create jobs and cleaning up there is a noble pursuit. That formula is the way forward. And at four to five dollar a gallon of gas is when this debate starts anew. One word of caution. If we try a big bill with a bunch of moving parts and it fails, no one's going to touch this again for a decade. So the next opportunity we have to put together comprehensive legislation to deal with generation, transportation, alternative energy, energy independence, job creation, and cleaner air, you better be smart about it. Because if you fail again, politicians in the future are going to be very reluctant to go down this road. Good, thank you. Let's start over there. There were two questions. Yes, please. Uh, George Yates, I'm uh, Republicans abroad, so I'm glad to have equal Yay. time with my colleague. We need to meet this guy down here. <laughs> we'll get together yeah. for a drink. Uh, but I do, do appreciate your coming, and I, I actually agree with you probably on more things than my colleague down below. But um, the nuclear energy uh, question, I think, is, is, is enormous. And I think a lot of people in this room that uh, have thought about it are really concerned that um, what's happened in Japan is going to have a big impact. Uh, you seem to be, uh, and in fact, I, kn I know your record fairly well because I spent a lot of time in South Carolina. Um, could you give us a greater sense of whether this is really a Republican and Democrat issue in the Senate and a little bit better idea of how the sentiment breaks down about nuclear energy? I mean, now that we've got President Obama that's supporting great. it, I would think that uh, we would have a, a better chance of getting something done. Okay, thank you. One more question, please. Uh, Sylvain Beville, I'm a French journalist with the news website Rue 89, Street 89. Thank you for your uh, nice words about the French. And I mean it. <laughs> I really do mean it. Your country has been very bold in the face yeah. of adversity. Will it backfire? Uh, uh, Can this go on the record? What will backfire? Will I, lose the, about the French. will I lose the French vote at home? <laughs> no. Okay. <Go> ahead. <laughs> two, two quick questions. Uh, one about the, the failure of the, the climate legislation last year that you, among others, right. pushed for. Uh, who do you think is to blame? Uh, is it uh, the White House who uh, didn't support enthusiastically enough the, uh, the bill? Do you think it's the financial crisis or, or any other reason? Second question, you, you, you touched on it a little bit. Uh, what's your position regarding the quite wild attacks uh, in Congress now against the EPA, the Environment Pro oh, okay. Protection Agency? Right. Okay. Uh, bipartisanship. Before the J Japanese disaster, there was more bipartisanship around nuclear power than any time since I've been in politics. The Obama administration, to their credit, uh, has embraced nuclear power as part of a uh, uh, energy policy solution. Uh, not to their credit, they shut down Yucca Mountain, which makes spent fuel disposal very difficult. One of the lessons to be learned from Japan is we need to think through very long and hard about storing spent fuel on site. Yucca Mountain, a central repository, would have solved that problem. Our French friends reprocess, right? 
So about 90% of what we would put in dry gas storage or liquid pools, you put back in the reactor. But our Secretary of Energy, Secretary Chu, has convinced me, nothing personal to the French, that we can do better, that in 10 or 15 years we can develop reprocessing technologies that will be less prone to proliferation issues than the French model, and that the 70s and 80 models, 80 models designed by the French, that we can jump over that if we'll spend about 10 years investing in it. So at the end of the day, the Obama administration has been very good to the nuclear industry with loan guarantees. They've had a rational policy about waste management. Bipartisanship uh, is pretty strong, but there will never be a nuclear energy bill alone on the floor. Because when you put nuclear power on the floor, alternative technologies other than nuclear power are going to want some help too. So when you start talking about clean coal, you better start talking about gas. So when you put this bill together, you're going to have to do something for everybody, and it gets back to this gentleman's question. I think there is a pathway forward when you start talking about $4 a gallon gas and you start building on this bipartisanship for nuclear power that you're going to have to bring a, a bunch of things together. And one of the things that will get Republican votes is if you could, by statute, create rational energy policy with a clean energy standard regionally applied that would reward clean energy technologies, including clean coal, then you could preempt the EPA. You're not going to have it both ways with my party. You're not going to leave with the EPA the ability to regulate carbon in our economy and also do these other things with a clean energy standard. You're going to get one shot at it. So right now there's a consensus by Republicans and Democrats that the EPA regulation of carbon, where they cannot give you the incentives Congress can give or the assistance that Congress can give in terms of a low carbon economy, is, uh, is going to be challenged. And I'll make a prediction. At the minimum, we're going to preempt the EPA regulation of carbon by two years. And let me tell you why. The climate change debate, the idea that we need to lower our fossil fuel CO2 footprint because it is heating up the planet, that consensus does not exist in America any longer. So you will not be able, in my view, to sell the EPA's regulation of carbon based on the ideal that's going to protect the planet from heating up and the polar bear from dying. Now, having said that, if you don't have some incentive, whether it be regulation or legislation, to develop alternative energies, we're going to be sitting as Americans looking at ourselves while the whole world blows by us. And that's why I'm involved in this. The Chinese are going to produce coal-fired plants on Monday, and they're going to do all this other stuff on Tuesday and Wednesday. They don't need 60 votes. They need one guy's vote. And that guy's voted. He's voted to do everything. And my country, quite frankly, hasn't found the consensus that Great Britain has. You have a political consensus by both parties, all three parties, that it is noble pursuit to try to lower your carbon emissions to deal with climate change. You have business buying in all across Great Britain to do their part. That is missing in America. I am sorry, but it is. Now, there is a way forward but it can't be based on what you have found a consensus on here. That's his honest answer as I know how to give you. Oh dear, we've got a large number of hands. We've um, got about seven minutes. We've got seven minutes, so I suggest we what take... What if I come back again? Um, absolutely, any time. 
Bring some other Republicans and Democrats along from the Senate. We'll no. Talk to them about climate change. Um, well, what if I just came back again? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, okay. Let's go back to the middle. There are three people in the centre. If, if we take those three now, then we'll see how far we get. Hi, Andy Renson from KCS Wimbledon. He told me people would yell at me the whole time. I've been very pleased. Um, you said that you um, wanted to give an energy policy that would keep military servicemen safe. Um, but then you also said that you didn't. You, that America wasn't going out to the Middle East for oil. So how could you have a policy that would keep them safe? Okay. Okay. Next, please. Okay. Hi, Adam Diane from King's College School as well. Um, two of the issues you addressed in your speech were uh, the West, uh, America, and indeed the West's dependence. Is the microphone switched on? Could you please check? Uh, yes. Uh, okay. The America and the West's dependence on foreign oil and also uh, the rise of democratic or freedom-seeking revolutions in the Middle East. The place where this really intersects is Saudi Arabia, a place where we get most of our oil from, but also uh, has a really very repressive uh, regime which does an awful lot of very nasty things to its population. Uh, how are you going to reconcile, how, how would you advise that America reconciles um, the legitimate democratic wish of, uh, of Saudi Arabia's people with also the, uh, the more realpolitik view that America needs oil? Great question. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Akash Garg, and I'm also from King's College, Wimbledon. So um, my question is, um, they say that if oil rises above $140 a barrel, that it's likely the US will go into recession. But if you're developing uh, cleaner sources of energy, which could cost more than that, don't you think you're putting the economy at risk? Okay. Uh, let's these? take one question from a young lady. <coughs> a young lady. Okay. At the front. Yes, please. Um, I'm Sally Just, Rand. Just a moment. I'm Sally Rand. I'm with um, the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. It doesn't. <laughs> it, it doesn't work. You're what? in trouble back home. <laughs> well, I know. There goes my job. I'll probably be needing yep. an internship uh, come Monday. Um, uh, certainly my office will be very interested in your characterization of polar bear politics. That's a new one. But um, the National Academy of Science has called uh, uh, for the U.S. Congress to pay attention to the immigration implications of climate change. The U.S. military has called for the U.S. Congress to, call, to pay attention and be mindful of the implications of climate change. Uh, I think those are two areas of interest for you, Senator Graham. But my question for you is, again, you have stated that fuel standards uh, are very important for your vision of the future uh, and leveling the playing field for alternative fuel efficiency. And yet my organization, the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, implements those fuel standards. We're also, for the first time in the United States, uh, going to be reporting, re mandatory reporting of greenhouse gases. Uh, this amendment that's being pushed by the Republican Party to nullify the Clean Air Act Authority to do those sorts of things. Uh, how do you reconcile those basic barriers to moving forward on a very minimal level by this action? Well, while I support, can I start with our question first? While I support the idea that Americans' transportation economy should be more efficient, that sh we should produce cars that get better mileage, that we should be investing in electrification of cars and other hybrid technology, 
that we should find domestic sources of gas and oil, do the Boone Pickens plan of turning long-haul trucks that are based on diesel into natural gas. While I support all of those efforts to basically break our dependency on foreign oil and create jobs at home, the EPA regulation of carbon is not limited to the transportation sector. And it is my belief, and a lot of Democrats, including uh, uh, Senator Rockefeller from West Virginia, that the EPA authority to regulate carbon under the Clean Air Act, if not controlled, uh, is, could be devastating to our economy. The last thing America needs is a spike in cost of doing business, and the EPA cannot give to business what the Congress can. So it's my view, ma'am, that the Congress should be setting admission control standards, not an unelected uh, branch of the government. And in 2007, when the Supreme Court ruled that carbon pollution could be regulated under the Clean Air Act in, the, in a court case, the Congress feels like it needs to speak out. And there is a bipartisan consensus growing that the EPA regulation of carbon is bad for America's economy. That's not inconsistent with saying that better gas mileage standards are good for America's economy or breaking our dependency on foreign oil. I don't think they're inconsistent. What I would like to see happen is that the, that the energy policy to be set when it comes to energy independence and low carbon technology be set by statute and by Congress, not by the regulatory side of government. If you preempt the EPA, the question is what are we going to do next? And that's where we just sit around and look at each other. We know, bipartisan-wise, we don't want the EPA to regulate carbon. There are a lot of Democrats who are going to vote for this piece of legislation. We also know that we support nuclear power. But we're going to wind up preempting the EPA to some extent, probably for two years. And in those two years, if some statute doesn't come about having a vision for America, the Chinese are going to blow by us. And our oil dependency is going to get greater, not less. The only way you can break your dependency on foreign oil is to get 60 votes where people get something they want. So what I've tried to lay out to you is a fairly complicated political endeavor that will start around two concepts. The EPA shouldn't regulate carbon, and 4 and $5 a gallon gas is going to require action. When those two things hit, you have an opportunity working with the administration to find some comprehensive energy policy makes sense. Now, you have to ask yourself, President Obama has really not pushed cap-and-trade policy. He's really not pushed climate change because he's smart to know that there's not an audience in the House or the Senate for that concept. So he talks about it but really hasn't done a lot because there's not a whole lot you can do using that formula. I've tried to lay out a formula of where you could move, move forward. Uh, military action in oil. Our enemies claim that every time we go somewhere in the Mideast particularly is to enrich America's bottomless thirst for oil. I would argue that the men and women who've gone to Afghanistan and Iraq went for a completely different reason. The people who went to Afghanistan went to make sure that the Taliban who control Afghanistan after the Russians left would never be able to invite bin Laden or any other terrorist group into their country and give them safe haven. And we're on the verge of turning this around. You had a military casualty yesterday from Great Britain. I know both countries are war-weary, but at the end of the day, I do believe that the military actions we've taken to replace the Taliban and Saddam Hussein, if we continue to be persistent and help the good people in those countries, will pay dividend long-term for everybody in this room. 
because it would be two countries that used to be ruled by horrible people could be ruled by people that you have more in common with and would allow you a place on the planet to thrive. Uh, pricing, I, I totally agree with you. It's going to hit $110, $20 uh, a barrel oil is right around the corner. And the money that we invest today goes back to your question. To get us independent of the spikes in oil prices coming from very volatile regions of the world, it's probably some of the best investment we can make. Just to close this thing out, energy policy, energy security is connected with human rights. How do you justify Saudi Arabia? That's a damn good question. How do you justify Yemen? So at the end of the day, Bahrain is different than Libya in the sense that the people who have been in charge of Bahrain have not been blowing up American airliners and spreading terrorism throughout the world, but I sure do believe the Shia majority has been dealt a pretty bad hand by the Sunni minority. When it comes to Yemen, Salehi has been able to rule for 30 years in a way that nobody in this room would tolerate. If you lived there, you wouldn't accept it for 30 seconds. But we've all accepted it because he's been pretty damn good when it comes to fighting al-Qaeda. And President Kennedy has said something that's beginning to come home to me. When you try to suppress moderate voices in the name of fighting extremism, you're going to lose both. So here's my promise to you. We will do all we can, I'll do all I can to push the Saudi regime to come into the 21st century, to allow a woman to drive a car. Very basic things. But we have to be practical. We have to understand that change has to be, sometimes the moment has to be seized, but you can't be everywhere all the time. And your foreign secretary something, said something today that was very good, I thought. Because we can't do everything, there's no reason not to do what we can. So Saudi Arabia, there's an inconsistency there, but we're working on it. If we can get Libya right, where Gaddafi uh, is gone, and we can allow Iraq and Afghanistan to develop with some form of Mideastern democracy, then I think we're on the right track for the Mideast, and the big prize is Egypt. Anybody here from Egypt? The big prize, ladies and gentlemen, is Egypt, the center of the Arab world. We have a chance, and I don't know how much longer it's going to last, to replace Mubarak with some form of democracy that will allow people to aspire to the same things you want. Whatever it takes is what I'm willing to do. If it takes money to make sure terrorism is defeated, I will spend it. If it takes asking young men and women to go fight, I will ask them to fight. Because after 9-11, I know what happens when you do nothing. I know what the world is going to be like if we repeat the mistakes that occurred before 9-11. You can't use the same formula in every country. But when good people sit on the sidelines and watch the Taliban start killing women in soccer stadiums, and do nothing about it, it will surely come home to roost. 
So one thing I have learned on my watch, and I've been a reservist in Afghanistan and Iraq many times, we're in a fight for the heart and soul of mankind. The people we're fighting we should beat because they have a lousy agenda for the world. The only possible way we could lose is to not have the will to fight for our values and to basically turn over places to these folks because we're just tired. Nobody is more tired than our men and women in uniform. And I ask them, why do you do this? And they tell me the same thing in the United States and Great Britain. I do it so my kids won't have to do it. Pray for those in harm's way. Pray for your political leadership. Pray for the people in my country, my president, our Congress, that will be worthy of their sacrifice. Thank you very much. Thank you. We are out of time, but thank you all for coming, and um, we shall hope that we can all make progress on these various problems. Thank you.